Hi, and welcome to the Ready for Polyamory podcast. As always, I am your host, Laura Boyle. This is season six, episode two, how to uh, ask for what you want and need. And today we're talking about that mostly in the context of our sexual relationships within our polycule and a little bit with sort of how to talk about that with other folks who are affected by those, but you aren't in direct relationship with if that's something you're interested in. My guest today is Yana Talon Hicks, a sex educator and relationship therapist whose new book, Hot and Unbothered, How to Think About talk about and have the sex you really want is out on August 16th. So I hope you guys really enjoy this conversation with her. I had a lot of fun recording it for you. So thank you so much for being with me. Thanks for having me. Um, I am really excited about your new book coming out and also about getting to chat with you in general about kind of polyamory and communication within your polycule about sex and kind of sexuality and general needs and worries and wants within your relationships and your polycule as a wider unit. Because I think a lot of people struggle a little bit with expressing not just what they need, but what they want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree that people have a hard time expressing what they need and want, even in two-person relationships. I think when you add in a bunch of other people <laughs> who like may or may not feel good, jealous, or neutral about the other people, it definitely gets harder. <clears throat> yeah. And I think a lot of the time, I know I personally, early on in my polyamorous journey, especially, but even sometimes now had times where I was like, oh, but what if this will affect these other people? Maybe I just won't bring it up. And that's not always a good place to jump off from. <laughs> totally. So do you have suggestions for people who get stuck in that mental space of like, I'm going to people please by not bringing this up? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, first of all, I think people should go easy on themselves. I think like that is sort of a natural inclination for a lot of people, which is to avoid. Like, why would we want to lean into something that we have a pretty good feeling is going to be a conflict? Mm -hmm. And I think people avoid in a lot of ways, like people can avoid, like you're saying, by people pleasing, people can avoid by withholding information, people can even avoid by picking a fight about something else, because yes. it's distracting. Um, but I think usually in the long run, avoidance via not bringing it up always backfires. I am familiar with this concept. <laughs> and I think that when you're talking about sex in particular and sexual health in particular, right? Like, let's say a partner of mine and I are trying to decide, do we want to stop using condoms? Mm-hmm that's going to affect my other partners in a health way, right? Yeah. I need to be able to talk about that. And I usually tell people like my teenagers that I teach consent workshops to, mm -hmm. I'll tell them like, if you're not ready to talk about the sex that you want to have, then you're not ready to have it. Mm -hmm. And I think that applies very widely to adults. Yes. Like if you aren't prepared to have the challenging conversation that is, 
me and so and so are thinking about not using condoms anymore what are your thoughts boundaries feelings concerns then you're not ready to have that kind of polycule or that kind of decision to be made and i think also when you're thinking about if you notice like let's say you're not avoiding by not sharing but you notice that you would like to Mm-hmm. That's also something to pay attention to in terms of what your dynamic is with the person that you don't want to share information with. Why don't you want to share with them? Right. So it's an important <clears throat> sort of check in with yourself to notice is it a constant thing with yourself that with everyone you're having this pattern of, oh, for a moment I don't want to share this, but then I get over it and go do the thing. Mm -hmm. Or is it with particular partners or particular extended members of your constellation that you don't want to do it with? Right. Because I think if it's with particular partners, there might be something there in your dynamic that's not fostering open communication. And that's something that you can tackle with that partner. I think Mm -hmm. if it's happening just within you, like this is your deal, like you're doing this across the board that can be more of like an attachment style type of thing where in your history, in your upbringing, or even in your past relationships, maybe bringing up something that you knew might be a conflict just never went well ever. It never was rewarding. And Mm -hmm. so you've learned over time that like, it's a lot safer for you relationally to just keep quiet. And if you can't practice how to do that differently, then you're just always going to prove yourself right. You're just always going to prove to yourself that bringing it up is negative. And it's like, especially if you wait to bring it up or you only like bring it up when it's too late, then you are proving to yourself that bringing it up was negative, right? Because you didn't do it on time. Right. Are you going to self-fulfilling prophecy your way into this difficult situation? Totally. So we brought up this idea of communicating about stopping uh, the use of barriers with some people. That is definitely one of the questions that most commonly gets asked from people who either write in with questions or when I'm teaching about other topics, like I teach a class about interacting with your metamors and people inevitably end up going, well, my meta is vetoing me being fluid bonded with my partner. How do I get them to change their mind is always a question that gets asked in the middle of that class. Literally every time I've taught that class. (laughs) Uh, And my answer is usually, well, first your partner and your meta have to figure out what their agreements are and your partner has to figure out how they're abiding by or not abiding by those agreements before you and your meta figure that out. But second, I wonder if you have suggestions for how someone has those conversations in a way that's like maybe slightly less awkward than my basic suggestion of look, you sit down and you go, this is an awkward conversation to have, but here are some facts about it. 
and then you figure out what the feelings are next to the facts and weigh them. Mm. You mean like the facts, like this is the testing status, this is the timeline. Right. Testing status, timeline, likelihood of there being anything else that someone could catch based on other partners that are outside of the individuals actually being discussed, things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, my advice usually to people is always just like sit down and talk about it. And I know mm -hmm. that's way harder to do in real life than it is to say it. Um, I mean, my whole job as a sex therapist is to help people sit down and talk about it. <laughs> so I know right. that and sit down and talk it. about it with a professional might be really good advice. Totally, if you yeah. can get in with a professional. Yeah, definitely. Um, I am pro therapy. <laughs> I do yeah. believe in the work that I do. <laughs> <laughs> no, you absolutely don't and want no one to come see you and your colleagues. Um, but I think that like, Sometimes I think non-monogamists have this illusion that because we're all super good and practiced at over-communicating, right? In an ideal world, we're mm -hmm. all super good and practiced at over-communicating. It provides us with this illusion that we have control over things like gonorrhea, mm -hmm. for example, which is an STI that is hard to like detect quickly. Mm -hmm. Yep. doesn't show up in an STI test for at least two weeks yep. and is very easy to treat. Yep. So like, I think that sometimes when you're thinking about barriers or not barriers or your safer sex practices, and you're in a polycule dynamic where like you are sleeping with several people who are also sleeping with several people, it's important to understand what your risk, like the risk that you are taking on mm -hmm. by doing that. And I think it's reasonable to think that you might have an increased chance of contracting an SCI or an STD just of sheer numbers mm -hmm. and to be aware of what kind of STIs and STDs are very easy to treat and which ones are not easy to treat mm -hmm. and how that might impact you. And if you can sort of like make peace with your thoughts and feelings about that, I think it might change the way that conversation goes. Because I think if the goal is never, never ever get a curable, easy to treat STI, you might drive yourself like. Right. You're in the wrong know. relationship if Maybe. you never ever catch anything literally ever, unless the network that you're getting into is like closed and polyfidelitous and tiny relatively right. speaking and i think that that's totally legit like i think some right. people that's really valid. are and i you know people's bodies do different things with different infections as we're all learning in this mm -hmm. era of covid bodies mm -hmm. are going to respond differently so maybe for you like gonorrhea is a big deal your immune system can't handle it then I think it is important to be, like you're saying, in the right relationship structure that can handle that. And so I think like for maybe like one couple in that polycule, removing barriers doesn't feel like a huge risk. And maybe to somebody else, it does feel like a huge risk. Then you're in this sort of meta conversation about our boundaries and our risk assessments and are we a good fit? And that can be a big deal. Right. And it becomes like, 
when the risk levels are at different places for different people, the conversations also become weighted at a different level for those different people. And having a certain amount of empathy for those different risk levels mm -hmm. is, I think, important. <clears throat> yes. I also find myself, like, I get very easily riled up about, like, slut shaming. Same. <laughs> like it's easy for me to just like go to the mat about slut shaming and I think that comes up a lot in conversations about STIs yes <laughs> because like yeah I just like I think there's a way to have these conversations without making like sexual activity the demon correct and I actually have a portion of my book is dedicated to how to have a sex positive conflict and a sex positive conflict really does not create sex itself or like the kinky sex act or the polyamory or the whatever sort of like quote unquote non-traditional thing that's happening it doesn't position that thing as the problem it more looks at like how you're relating to the problem and the impact of the problem and really what happened and I think people can get on themselves about like, well, if I wasn't non-monogamous and I never would have gotten this STI. And it's like, well, that's really just maybe not true. You know, you could have gone on a first date and gotten an STI with yeah. one person in like that one person could have been the one person you saw in the last five years. Absolutely. Like and a lot of people, I think, have a false sense of security when they're being monogamous mm -hmm. about their likelihood of catching an STI mm -hmm. as well that maybe within the polyamorous community we're pretty aware of this because we defend ourselves about this more often but eh, I don't need to go there um, <laughs> I guess sort of to take a little turn in a different direction um I know because I follow you on all the internets that you're polyamorous. Do you mind telling us a little bit about your relationships and your personal life? Or is that? I talk a little bit about my personal life. I'm like, I'm kind of, I'm a little vague and dodgy about it only because what of what I do for work, Yes, <laughs> but fair. I'm not a hundred percent vague and dodgy about it. Cause I do think it's important to normalize things as much as possible. Right. Um, so I personally don't actually identify as polyamorous. And the reason for that is that I will kind of like drift in and out of non-monogamous and monogamous dynamics, depending mm -hmm. on what's going on. So for example, I had a baby <laughs> that was a very big deal that didn't really support like long-term non-monogamy for me at the mm -hmm. time. Um, COVID mm -hmm. while I had an infant, <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was challenging. That's a pretty um, good reason to close up a little for a while. Yes. <laughs> um, that being said, I also have people in my life that I consider to be my partners that I've had in my life for like five years. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't really see each other all during COVID, but there's still people that are partners to me. So it yeah. kind of depends on what kind of contact and sexual activity people define partnership by mm -hmm. um i wrote about that in the cut it's findable uh, um go ahead. so i do the like 
claiming relationship anarchy as a label because I try to do the same thing where I'm like, well, I have one partner by these definitions that m most monogamous people like to claim as like, they're your partner, mm -hmm. but these people matter. <laughs> totally. <laughs> you're like also these people are important right <laughs> um and i feel like currently mostly i think solo non-monogamy is like appealing to me though i kind of sometimes feel like in the past i've been like well what's the difference between that and just like dating but i do think there is a difference in terms of like your commitment level to yourself and also your commitment level to other people Mm -hmm. um and my kid now is three and it's been a long couple of years for everybody and i think right now for me being really really devoted to myself and my kid as my primary relationships that i am putting my finite energy into yeah. has been really rewarding and i'm very into that and that's something that i feel like i wouldn't have predicted for myself even six years ago and I think that that's something that's really interesting to me about non-monogamy being on the table and monogamy being on the table is you get to make these active choices based on what's going on in your real life and the real people in front of you. Yeah. Because I think like even this couple that I've been seeing for the last five years that I wrote about, they are people that like, I never would have put down our relational dynamic on paper and like written all the boundaries and rules and agreements on paper and been like yep this is it now let me go find people to plug into this yeah. it really just developed out of who we are as people in the circumstances of our lives and i think that that is what i think is the non-monogamy that said tends to work the best and tends to work more sustainably than like i'm going to write down on paper what i want and then i'm going to go find it I would agree with that. I think being like, I have slot A, let me find tab B to fit in it, tends to lead people into a dynamic where the people you find end up feeling a little bit used by the end of whatever relationship you end up building. Right. Whereas allowing things to build organically leaves everybody in a happier place, no matter what the length of that relationship ends up being. Right. So there have come a million terms for this kind of like thing where we're all like, am I going to be polyamorous or not? Mm -hmm. um, and I end up hating all of them because I think <laughs> they all end up sounding like illnesses. And so I end up not claiming them for myself because as somebody who's like, well, I could be monogamous, I guess. Um, I've thought about using them and then I'm like, ambiamory sounds like something you take for stomach upset. So <laughs> <laughs> I can't. Um, and so I'm just like, I'm just a relationship anarchist. It's easier. Um, <laughs> it's simpler. Um, and then people are like, but you're an anarchist. And I'm like, well, no. So, uh, yeah. Sort of. I mean, I think the reality is that all of our relationships, and I tell this to my non-monogamous clients and my monogamous clients, I was like, every single relationship has the potential to be functional 
like on the spectrum of functional to dysfunctional or like healthy to unhealthy or like, cause I think people get really obsessed with like, is my relationship okay? Right. And it's, and it's just, like, there's a lot of factors that go into that. Right. Like health and how like entangled your relationships are, how closed or open your relationships are, are like orthogonal traits. You can just plot them mm -hmm. if you wanted to. Every relationship can be healthy to unhealthy on a line, mm -hmm. no matter what spectrum you're trying to measure your relationship on. Mm -hmm. And I so. do think the terms are helpful for people who like, I get a lot of clients who are just exploring non-monogamy for the first time. And mm -hmm. I think it is really helpful to be like, okay, like there is like an open relationship, which like traditionally you and your prime, like, you know, I know primary has gotten a bad rap yeah, recently, but sometimes it is what it is. You and your <laughs> having words sure. <laughs> for things helps people define them. Exactly. So you can be like, this is what an open relationship is versus this is what relationship anarchy might look like. And I think that certain people, to me, polyamorous, I think is more of like an identity. Like people are like, I am polyamorous. This is who I am. Like I cannot, monogamy is something I cannot do. That's how I've understood it, but. Well, right. And there's a lot of people who are like, polyamorous is an identity now. Whereas for like five years there, it was an ongoing sort of fight about is polyamory an orientation or is it a lifestyle that you do? Is it a relationship style? Mm -hmm. And I feel like we're starting mm -hmm. to land on it's an orientation. Um, and in the years in the middle, it was like, are we just arguing about it so that we can say it's an immutable trait so that we can get some rights? Mm -hmm. um, and I'm enough of a cynic to be like, oh, yes, this is why we've landed there. Mm -hmm. um, but I am both stubborn and have been in non-monogamous relationships for 15 years. So tell me I'm wrong, everyone. Please send me emails. <laughs> I enjoy them. Um, Plus, some people clearly are polyamorous by orientation. Yeah. And they are super valid. So I would never tell you that you're not because some people very clearly can only do monogamy and some people very clearly can only do non-monogamy. Right? Mm -hmm. And there is a spectrum there. Mm -hmm. But a lot of us are somewhere in the middle. And as someone who's also bi, I've just decided that like, oh, yes, I just sit in the middle on a lot of spectra. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's the point, too, right? It's like I've met many people that are just like, I'm monogamous. Like, that's who I am. And it's like, great. That's cool. fine. Like, no, no one's, one's telling anybody <laughs> that like one way of relating is the best and the other one's the worst. I am not into this like if only you were like enlightened enough to be polyamorous, then like all of your problems would be solved or whatever. I think some people just really aren't, it's not for them. Like it's yeah. a lot of work. It pushes on a lot of triggers for people. And mm -hmm. for some people, it's just like not even interesting. Like they just start, it's not appealing at all. Yeah. <laughs> you know? and and for I think... some it's interesting, but it's a lot of like attachment triggers and they just can't do it. Right. And that's fine. And that's also okay. Right. You don't have to be, and as a therapist and as a relationships therapist, people, I think in this kind, in my peer group, especially, which is like, you know, hipsters, essentially, mm -hmm. 
they kind of feel like they have to be working all the time, like working on themselves, working on their relationship, working to push through all this, that, and the other thing. It's like, it's okay if you don't want to be in a relationship that requires you to do a ton of work on yourself in order to stay in the relationship. Like, it's okay to be in a relationship that feels easy and relaxing. Right. That's I, fine. <laughs> I personally feel like I'm doing so much work on myself in the rest of my life that my mm -hmm. relationships should be the place that feel easy. Mm -hmm. They should be the place where I relax. Mm -hmm. That feels like an unpopular sentiment in the polyamorous community. And like, it's okay if it's a place where you want to do work or where you currently have to do work. And there are certainly plenty of guides to how to do the work if you want to. Mm -hmm. But if it feels too hard and you decide that it's too hard, that's valid. Yeah. But we're not here of, to recruit. Right. We're not evangelizing. <laughs> um, and if it's something where you're trying to have these conversations about your needs and not just about sex, but like sex is one of the topics that ends up coming up because people come into polyamory and they want to talk about their boundaries around these things. And for some people, it's about sharing space or about like what activities they want to keep sort of special for them or whatever and then they end up in this place where like as you were saying before if you're not ready to talk about a topic you're sort of not ready to be doing it mm -hmm. but they get to the point where they're like okay i can talk about what i don't want you to be doing with someone else but i'm not sure i'm ready to talk about what else i want to do do you have particular bits and pieces of advice for like if somebody figures out after starting to see someone new that they like something but they don't want to frame it to their partner as like i've just done this amazing thing with somebody else can we try it because mm. they think it's going to dishearten their previously existing partner uh-huh i mean i think i've talked about this a little bit on my instagram before in terms of like minimizing Mm -hmm. I think it's very common for people to instinctually minimize their connection with an outside person. And by outside, mm -hmm. I just mean like minimizing my connection with another person to the person I'm talking to that I'm relating right. to, not outside, like you don't matter. Right. Um, so like, I think it's very um, like monogamous minded mm -hmm. to be like, yeah, this person's fine-ish. Like the time we have together is good or whatever, but it's not like amazing. And it right. comes from this instinct to like preserve it because you're like, if I'm having too much of a good time, then my partner is going to be like, you can't have that. Or like, I'm jealous and now you can't do that. Mm -hmm. And I think that if your relationships are in a structure that allows for openness around like, having a good time that's mm -hmm. kind of the point yeah right like i should be able to be like oh my god i just learned through having sex with this other person that i'm actually really into xyz and i would love to incorporate that between the two of us like what do you think about that because mm -hmm. it's not about like 
I'm bringing this other person into our dynamic. It's like, I learned something about me and I want to bring it into this. What mm -hmm. do you think? So I agree that that's the case. I'm still not sure that most people coming from the sort of mononormative framework that a lot of us are coming out of are necessarily in a place where that's true of them relatively early in a non-monogamous sort of journey. Mm. <clears throat> and so is there like a step on the way there that you would suggest that they try? Or is it just like we sort of assume that we're there and hope that it goes well and deal with our discomfort on the way. Mm. I mean, I'm usually like pro dealing with discomfort over like trying to manipulate the right. reaction of the other person. Cause mm -hmm. I think when we are minimizing or like hiding details, we are trying to micromanage the way that other person's going to react. Fair. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think people, sense. people get really scared that if their non-monogamous relationship isn't going super smoothly right out of the gate, mm -hmm. that that means they can't do it anymore. Yep. And when I work with couples who are opening their relationship for the first time, I try really hard to, to talk to them about like, it's okay for this to be difficult because yes. you're learning a lot of new skills all at once. And you're also learning an entirely different way of relating to each other. Yes. And if you think about, you know, a lot of these couples have been monogamous with each other for like five, seven, 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, over the course of your 10 years as a monogamous couple, has your monogamous relationship always run smoothly and easily? Probably mm -hmm. not. And I think that non-monogamy because it is quote unquote alternative it's really easy for any rough feeling or patch or learning curve to be blamed on the structure itself instead of just looking at it like relationships are hard work right and so if people can zoom out and and double check like am i consenting to this relationship structure do i still want to be non-monogamous do I feel like my agreements are being listened to and respected? Are my boundaries being respected? If everything comes back like, yes, 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 check, check, check. And I'm still struggling. Then I'm just having a hard time and that I can ride out. I can learn coping strategies for, but I don't have to just scrap the whole project. Right. And because I think that's the right, that's the thing that I'm looking for in the answer is like, <laughs> that moment of okay if you're going to tell them be prepared that if their reaction is bad to have the moment of okay let's both pause and zoom out and talk about have we still met these things because i think a lot of people don't think to do that when they're having a hard time they just know they're having a hard time and then flail at I'm having a hard time. It must be the non-monogamy's fault. We're done. Mm -hmm. Or I think also it can have this other side effect too, where like 
people will hide having a hard time because they do want to do the non-monogamy piece, but they mm-hmm. think that if they struggle, then their partner's going to pull the plug. And so they'll just like hide it, hide it, hide it. Right. And that doesn't pan out well either. You know, mm-hmm. I see that blow up all the time. Right. It's the moment of, I must be very good at this. Or... Right. <laughs> right. Because then I don't get to do my portion of this. Exactly. Yeah. So I think those moments are really useful for people to have those check-ins. And while usually we talk about check-ins more in a like macro, how is everybody doing? Let's do a separate moment to talk about things. I think having them in the context of, okay, we had this change or conflict. Let's talk about it afterwards. Check-in can also be kind of helpful. Totally. Yeah. I think there's check-ins about like conflicts that happened in a moment. And I think there's also check-ins about is our dynamic, like how is our non-monogamy running? You know, Mm -hmm. I've had clients recently who have been very kind of like smoothly non-monogamous for years. And then certain context, um, like contextual factors have changed. And so the way that they were running their non-monogamy just doesn't work within the context anymore. And it's turned into this like square peg round hole situation where like, let's say someone had a standing Saturday night date and that worked for years, but now suddenly for whatever reason, that's harder and harder to hit. It starts feeling like this core part of our relationship is now like a burden or you're failing at doing it or like it's not as fun as it used to be. Like maybe the relationship's doomed. It's like, no, well, maybe the the standing Saturday night date just doesn't work. now maybe you just need to figure out thursday instead right exactly maybe it just needs to shift and i think people who get kind of routed in those routines forget to check in about those routines every now and then and be like oh wait like is this still actually working yeah and i think that's especially true of things like heavy scheduling where like I know it's a meme where people are like I can't wait to spend every second Tuesday of our lives together (laughs) um but when people settle into a routine like that especially with someone who's got many partners if any one of those partners has a contextual life shift like that where like their work schedule changes or whatever it then moves the whole calendar Mm -hmm. and not everyone sort of always notices they just notice that suddenly wait they're not available on this day anymore Mm -hmm. why are they not available on this day anymore and the person who's affected doesn't always remember to formally check in with everyone else when those things happen Mm -hmm. yeah and i think like you're saying like there's been so many like internet memes and content about just the calendaring of non-monogamy in general and it's super real because our relationships are not really much of anything if we don't spend time together (laughs) you know some amount of time that time could be once a year but like if our time is together once a year and i skip one year that's gonna be a big that's a big impact right if somebody's a comment so i think like (laughs) sorry go ahead yeah No, but just if somebody's your comet and you see them when they come in for a particular conference 
and you spend the two days ahead of the conference and the two days after the conference and in 2020 and 2021 the conference was canceled mm -hmm. you haven't seen them in two years right yeah and if that is the core of your relationship is that time spent that's a big deal and i think that time like they always say that is really like a limited resource and if you throw in kids and work and like whatever else you've got going on on top of that it's even more so limited and how do you kind of tetris everybody together and sometimes i think that schedule tetrising can feel so challenging that like when you do get it right you're like <laughs> holding on to it for dear life but changes happen yeah and sometimes those changes can feel like a little bit desperate especially if you're the person who is a person who has less control over it like i don't reside with my partner and he has two nesting partners so i have the least control over changes in his schedule i get informed when there is a change when their kids and their activities schedules all get set for the next like semester or whatever and it's like okay now i'm available on these two days of the week mm -hmm. which one works for you mm -hmm. right so when you're the person who's on the outside of that it can feel less within your control and you have to like take the moment and go okay but we still get a day so let's figure it out totally and i think that that's like it's interesting to think about like when i date new people now i try really hard to make it very known usually multiple times that i'm like my kid is my main relationship right mm -hmm. my parenting relationship to my kid is the main deal and he's young so he like when he when i have him i have him like he's mm -hmm. all i'm doing this is all i'm doing is parenting this kid right. and like that means that like if he gets sick or something comes up or he just needs more attention like the plug is getting pulled on you my friend <laughs> like and it's part of informed consent is to let people know that right my kids are almost six and eight and if you're not my partner of six and a half years you don't spend time with me when i have them right right and i think that people get worried that that is treating your other partners like disposable i think it's more like setting that up from the get-go to be like here is my reality this is what i'm available for this is what my capacity is and when we do have our every other Tuesday night date, I am going to be as present as possible and really show up for this. But if this isn't enough for you, I totally understand because like it might not be. Right, exactly. It's a, are you aware of this? And do you buy in that if we continue doing this for a long time at that point, then maybe you get the, okay, you've been around long enough that you can be introduced to my kids mm -hmm. and be there with less attention but like during family time mm -hmm. right know? and it's also a different vibe right it's like it's an extremely different <laughs> vibe it's not date time it's right. like family time and you can play uno with my school age right. kids and me right <laughs> like it's an entirely different event mm -hmm. yeah and i think also like i don't know if you find this but like i love dating other parents because they understand a lot about my life that people that yeah. aren't parents don't necessarily understand but 
other parents have packed schedules just like I do and you're like see you never (laughs) right like my partner and I are now basically up to one night a week but that one night a week starts at 9 Mm p.m and then we both work from home so we co-work the next day until about (laughs) 2 p.m when he goes and takes over parenting from his Mm co-parents so like yeah we see each other but it's interesting time (laughs) yeah totally and like again like this type of shuffling like we've said earlier it's like can you zoom out and look at the big picture is the big picture fulfilling does it make sense to do all of this like very laborious scheduling minutia mm-hmm. and like it's not now, for it everybody works, but there's lots mm-hmm. of people for whom it doesn't mm-hmm. and there are lots of people who look at my schedule and go oh no, I can't do every other <laughs> week on those days at that time for mm-hmm. at least six months, probably longer before I then maybe get family time until 10 ish PM mm-hmm. on the other weeks. No. <clears throat> yeah. And I mean, personally for me, one of my priorities since having my kid has been sleep. So a date starting at 9 p.m., I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) I want to go to sleep. (laughs) Because we started dating when my son was two, my daughter is not biologically my daughter. She's my ex-meta's biological child. Uh We we were co-parenting in a V um, at the time. And because we were still in the phase where no one was sleeping, it was like, oh, these weirdly timed dates after his kids went to bed at eight from like eight to one worked for us at the time. Yeah, totally. And so it just became our standard. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> but yeah. So I think just the idea of like, being really willing to openly talk about these things that fit your needs or don't as much as it's a polyamorous truism to communicate, communicate, communicate really does apply to everybody about these things. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't think there's a topic that I can think of where it doesn't apply except maybe that like taking a minute to think about if it's necessary if you're both tired and angry and like to give yourself a minute to like cool down if that's Mm. the case Mm -hmm. yeah and I think that like when you talk about communicating effectively I do think it's important to check in on those things, right? Like, are we exhausted? Are we hungry? Like, have we not seen each other in a positive, relaxing way in a really long time? I think all of those factors can really impact communication about something challenging in like an unnecessarily negative way, you know? So I think it's a really great idea to even just like take a 
like an initial sort of foundational step to ask somebody, when is a good time for us to talk about this? Or are you ready to talk about this? Or saying also like, what's the goal of our conversation? Is our conversation to just like air out our feelings about this topic? Or is our goal to change the way that this is going? Like make an agreement change or a scheduling change? Or do we just wanna kind of start the conversation? Because I think otherwise you're just going to start that conversation at 10 o'clock at night. You're going to go, go, go until you exhaust yourselves. And maybe like 20% of that conversation is going to be useful. Exactly. And so like being willing to take the minute at the beginning to go, are we actually trying to solve this now? Or are we just airing our feelings so that we know where we're trying to land? Exactly. Because if And I think that's one of the... Sorry. Well, just oh, I was just gonna say, to... <laughs> <laughs> we're doing such a good job of communicating right now. We're so great. <laughs> <laughs> you go first. But like, because yeah, if you're trying to land at a solution, starting late and being caught up in your feels is not like the best time to do it. Versus like, if you're just trying to air your feelings going, okay, well, let's air our feelings now and then talk about solutions at time and figure out a time that you're actually both available makes sense and not having it be like two weeks later, having it be shortly afterwards Mm -hmm. seems to make sense. Yeah. And you bring up a good point too. I think when people put a pin in something or have like a, an ellipsis at the end of their conversation, you have to set a date and time to pick it back up because otherwise people feel like you're using that strategy as a way to continue to avoid the conflict Mm -hmm. rather than sending the message that you want to engage in the conflict and you want to hear what your partner has to say when you are in a state of mind to really hear it and take it in and be productive. And I think one of the benefits of couples therapy, for example, is, and I will say that many therapists, um, will see more than two people in a relationship for therapy. Now mm-hmm. people are getting a lot better at that type of thing. But I think one of the benefits of having relational therapy in general is that you have this time set aside in your calendar, you know, it's coming. So, you know, to like get a snack, get caffeinated, get yourself kind of mentally prepared. You go mm-hmm. in and then you're in there in my office, at least our relational sessions are 75 minutes. So you're in there for a certain amount of time and like, that's it. That's the chunk of work you're doing. You're, it's not kind of like this never ending conversation where you're kind of going around and around and around. And most of the time, what is the most productive thing for partners to do is to talk about the feelings and the impact of the conflict rather than trying to find solutions immediately. I think people who try to find solutions immediately are trying to get rid of the icky feeling they have about being in conflict. And I think if I can just solve this, then I don't have to feel this way mm-hmm. rather than getting more comfortable in the discomfort of hearing what your partner has to say. And it actually generally leads people almost every time to a different, more effective solution because they figure out what is actually going on. Instead of like, you always leave your wet towels on the floor, like, what the hell, just pick them up. (laughs) You might actually get to the point, which is that like, when you leave your wet towels on the floor, I feel like you don't care about the domestic labor that I do. 
I feel uncared for. I feel it reminds me of my mother, you know, whatever, all this like deep shit that comes up in these seemingly minor conflicts where the solution might be like, just pick up your towels, but maybe the solution is the power dynamic in our domestic relationship feels off and we need to alter it. Right. You need to show me that you care in our domestic relationship by us rebalancing chores and us mm -hmm. rebalancing what's going on here or you mm -hmm. actually expressing appreciation in some way for the extra labor that I do because our schedules don't allow for a rebalancing that's significant. Right. And like as somebody who really likes to think my thoughts instead of feel my feelings, I very much respect therapists forcing me to feel my feelings. Um, I'm I ironically, I am the same way. Yeah. <laughs> I love holding space for other people to feel their feelings as long as it has nothing to do with mine. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. 100%. Um, so it is a really great thing that you can do in therapy, especially in sort of relational therapy. My family therapist is the greatest. Um, and it's one of those things where if people are having trouble finding uh, people local to you, if you're anywhere in New England, I have lists of folks who will work with three or more people for every state in New England. Um, and I have a general national list that I can refer you to, um, but I can't vouch for any of those. Um, those will be in the show notes, uh, not the specific list, but the national one. Yeah, so, I also recommend to people to be really direct with a therapist that you're looking to hire about what you're looking for, and they will tell you if they can't do it. Absolutely. When you send an email, you should always give a like general overview of what you are looking for and be as specific as you can in that overview because they will tell you pretty much point blank if it's not someone they want to work with mm -hmm. uh, or don't feel equipped to. Um, so I want to thank you for coming and talking to me. And your book is out on august 16th that's right so that is hot and unbothered i forget the subtitle uh most of the time i also forget the subtitle but i can do it okay it's called hot and unbothered how to think about talk about and have the sex you really want <laughs> it's a doozy <laughs> <laughs> And that wonderful book will be out August 16th. The uh, information to pre-order will be in the show notes. Um, and after the 16th, you can just order it from the yeah. show notes instead I, of pre-ordering. I also want to say there is an audiobook version. And it is read by the wonderful Kristen Condon. And I've heard little snippets of it and it sounds great. I love her voice so much. And I'm honored if anyone thinks it's my voice, I will be very excited. <laughs> and I am going on a book tour in August and September in the New England area and also some virtual events as well. And that tour is on my website and it's also on my Instagram. So once again, I wanna thank Yana for being with me to talk about her new book, which as she mentioned is out next week on August 16th. 
She's got a bunch of events coming up for that. You can find the link to her Instagram, which is at the V spot uh, in the show notes, as well as her website. And as always, you can find my blog at readyforpolyamory.com. We've got updates at least once a week. Um, you can also find me on Instagram and TikTok at readyforpolyamory with the word for written out or on Twitter, ready for polyamory with the numeral four. So of course, Twitter character limits have made things not perfectly branded. If you prefer Facebook, you can either follow the page at Ready for Polyamory, or you can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Ready for Polyamory. Uh, we have a pretty rapidly growing group if you'd like to join us there. You can also find my book at Amazon uh, on in paperback, Kindle, and Audible forms. Um, so you can get that through Amazon.com or at Audible. Those links are in the show notes. And Yana's book will be out the 16th. You can find that too. Have a great week and I'll see you next week. Next week we'll be talking about uh, polyamory in the media, specifically with TV representations of polyamorous relationships in the last few years. <laughs> <laughs>